0: This podcast is brought to you by the book The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is Lori Wolfe, author of children's books, cookbooks, and numerous cannabis cookbooks such as Marijuana Edibles, Herb, the Medical Marijuana Dispensary, and Cooking with Cannabis. She's got a fabulous new book coming out in November. Tell you a little bit more about that in a minute, but she's also the founder of Lori and Mary Jane, an edible company offering pretty much mm, everything. Her recipes have been featured in High Times, Dope Magazine, Culture, and more. And according to Leafly, she makes the quote, absolute best cannabis brownie recipe of all time. We'll get to that too. Lori and I met when we were both young writers living in New York City. Hi, Lori.
1: Hi, Marion. So nice
0: to speak to you. It's just great to hear your voice again.
1: Oh, it's been so long.
0: So perhaps my least favorite word and a word that's gotten really worn out in the last few years is authentic, but I really kind of have to bring it back and use it here because a better word escapes me. You live, breathe, cook, eat, and write about cannabis. And in that, you write what you know. And so you're living and providing this authentic life that involves cannabis education. So let's talk a little bit first, just set up for us your background. And I'm going to ask you more questions about that and to give people a
1: sense of how you get to write what you know. I was an English and sociology major at NYU and graduated not knowing what I wanted to do. I kind of never found something that clicked, that felt like a passion. I had a friend, a close friend, who went to the Culinary Institute, my friend Marcy, and I visited her a bunch and I worked with her. I helped her do catering and I kind of fell in love with cooking and decided that I wanted to go to cooking school too. She graduated way earlier, but I went and it was a bizarre... Experience cooking school at that time. There weren't a ton of women in the industry. I think out of our 73 students, two, maybe three, were women. And, you know, chefs weren't stars then. It was fun, but I think. I graduated knowing how to do a bunch of things I never really was asked to do down the line, but I did work in restaurants in Manhattan. And it was good, I liked it, but I was approached by someone I knew at a magazine to see if I wanted to learn how to do food styling. Because for photography, you need to have someone who knows how to make and present the food to make it look delicious. So I apprenticed for a year and learned how to food style. And during that time, people started asking me if I would write recipes, create little stories around the food. So that's pretty much when I started writing recipes and writing the words that went with the recipes. <laughs> and thank goodness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was sort of a combination of styling I was on staff at a magazine called Child Magazine. Mm-hmm. And you wrote for a lot of places. You wrote for Self and New York and Mademoiselle and Child and. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Working Woman, Vogue, New York Magazine. Yeah, I was busy. I loved it. It was pretty easy for me, both the recipe writing and the writing about the recipes, because I just do what I do. I'm not someone who agonizes, you know, over, I mean, I agonize plenty, but not when it comes to recipe writing and, you know, copy writing. Right. So one of the things that I did during my experience at Child Magazine, the parenting magazine, was put together parties for the magazine, you know, getting a group of people together, photographing them and... I also did all the crafts. Like I, I would have to come up with twelve, you know, Fourth of July dishes. You know that, and you know, some kid couldn't choke on. You know, I had certain, or, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that really is does ruin a it's, it's a bummer. Holiday.
1: It's terrible. It, it takes uh, most
0: yeah. of the fun out of it. So you learn to write on deadline, and that's an important piece, because my audience is mostly writers. It's a, it's an important piece, I think, when I look at your biography, because I want to get into, you moved to Portland, Oregon, and you have an illness aspect to this tale, too. Yeah. But I want everyone to understand that, you know, you've got this basic Skill set down of cooking and writing, and you understand how to write on deadline. And when I tell people what I'm about to tell them, I think they'll begin to understand the point I'm trying to get out here, which is in the last six years alone, you've published The Food Lover's Guide to Portland, Oregon, and you published The Herb Cooking with Cannabis and the Medical Marijuana Dispensary in 2016, then Edibles for Beginners in 2019, and you've got this book coming out in 2020. The cannabis apothecary, and I love to write, sister. But damn, that is some yeah. production. So let's just talk a little bit about work ethic. And it would be too easy to laugh this off and say, "What are you eating in that kitchen that keeps you writing so much?" But <laughs> I mean, and and if that's what it is, I'm whipping up a batch of your brownies right now <laughs> to uh, to up my production. But let's just talk about that kind of production. You've got to have a skill set to be able to write books. And I imagine you learned a lot about writing on deadline and getting the thing done.
1: Yeah, I am the opposite of a procrastinator. I (laughs) cannot stand like having an assignment like weighing on my head. It drives me crazy. It also drives everybody around me crazy because I want them to work at the same speed. And, you know, so it's hard. Like when shooting a book, for example, I'm ready, like, let's do it. Let's do 12 shots. Let's do, you know, I just want to keep moving. And I can sometimes put a little pressure. I work a lot with my husband, who's a photographer. And Mm -hmm. um, I am most comfortable getting things done as soon as I'm given the assignment. Now, obviously, with a book, we have six months, hopefully. I guess some people have longer. We've had eight-week deadlines, like two little books. Oh. That that was completely insane. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm never late. I just can't stand to be late in what I'm handing in. Well, that's good advice. Don't be late. Right on deadline, and and people are kind of shocked, particularly because now I write about cannabis, and the truth is, right. you know, the cannabis business runs kind of like on a different kind of time, where you know if you leave <laughs> someone a message, maybe two weeks, you know, and that's like, phew, it only took two weeks, you know, it's a very pretty laid back area, getting less and less so as it becomes like business. But it's not the same kind of pressure in this area.
0: Well, I suspect it's going to pick up a lot as we're projected to hit a $73 billion industry in the legal marijuana business worldwide in the next few years. There'll be more people in it and maybe the pace will pick up. But that's what I've noticed. Certainly, I've visited a bunch of dispensaries and people are very laid back. Of course they are. It's it's the nature of the substance. And so... Speaking of getting to the substance, you had an illness issue which led you, is that the way I understand it, to yeah, be more interested in cannabis and what it could do.
1: Yes, I have a seizure disorder, a form of epilepsy, and when I lived in New York and like when my kids were growing up, I took a couple of different pharmaceuticals that were very rough on my body, Uh, you know, they were the kind of pills that if you went on them, you went on them and like added like two grains per day, you know, and then when you wanted to come off it, it took like a year and a half to have Mm -hmm. your body adjust without, you know, a lot of discomfort. But I moved to Oregon not knowing that cannabis was legal I don't know how I missed that when I got here and I found out. I was like, "What? Shit I would have moved here a long time ago. Um, but I was at a Volvo station, and I was sitting next to this like crazy-looking old dude, and he introduced himself. He said, "I'm Dr. Phil." And I was like, huh? And he said, no, no, not that Dr. Phil. I'm Dr. Phil, and I can't remember his name. Thank you, cannabis. But he was adorable. And I talked to him, you know, while we were waiting for our cars. And I told him that I had epilepsy. And um, he asked me what medication I was taking. And he said, that's poison. You must stop taking it. You know, do you have to have liver tests and kidney tests? And I was like, yeah, all that. He said... This is what, I'm gonna give you a number. I want you to call this doctor and you should try cannabis because he won't get over it, how much it will help your epilepsy. Then uh, within a couple of weeks, I was at a dinner party and I was sitting next to a guy who had the same kind of seizures that I had. And he told me he used cannabis. He never was on any pharmaceuticals any longer. So I got my marijuana license, which was pretty nothing, like no physical exam. You just gave a list of things that were your issues and they signed. It wasn't hard to get. And Mm -hmm. I started going around and getting like joints and things. And then I decided I have had pneumonia and I just didn't want to really screw around with my lungs. So I started buying edibles (coughs) and I had had some experience, you know, making pot brownies and things over Mm -hmm. the years. But the edibles that were available were pretty dreadful. The dispensaries, which at that time were very sketchy, they had like Wire behind the cash register. Like, you didn't want to go when it was dark. Many of them had a bizarre vibe. Because at that time, it was a lot of black market people who were involved. Mm -hmm. And many of them are gone now. But... I got edibles, they tasted terrible. You know, I'd say, oh, you know, that looks good. Oh, my grandmother makes that. Yeah, you know, she's been making that for years. And they were like wrapped in just a little bit of saran wrap, you know, there was nothing. There was no testing, it was like a guess. So Mm -hmm. I came home one day and I said to my husband, I think I'm gonna go into the edible business. I had been living in Portland for a while. I wrote a couple of books. I wrote The Food Lover's Guide to Portland, The Food Lover's Guide to Seattle, and The Portland, Oregon Chef's Table. And it was, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I got to know the community, the food community in Portland very well, and it was great. And a company reached out to me, asked me if I wanted to be part of the book Herb. That was the first cannabis book I did. I did it with a chef in Colorado, and simultaneously, I started making edibles as professionally as I could. Well, yeah,
0: the trajectory from there to a 2017 New Yorker profile, which refers to you as the Martha Stewart of marijuana edibles, it's a short trip, but a remarkable trajectory. And. The thing that I find so rewarding about this is, in journalism, we have an expression that you go with what you've got. And you had an illness, Mm. you looked into it, and you kept writing. And that's one of the things that I like about this story so very much because the going with what you've got absolutely works for you. yeah and I see some similarities between you and Martha, I guess, but the thing that fascinates me and the thing that Martha strayed from is that you stick to your brand. I mean obviously you know you've written children's books and Portland eating books, but it's food all the way through. yeah so talk just a little bit about when you know your topic is what you're going to live with when it is cooking, yes we're getting into the farm aspects of it, but you're still making the product yourself. So I think a lot of writers think, if I love something, I can only do one book on it. You are the living example of endless amount of copy, never repeating yourself. And how do you get comfortable with that, knowing that this is where you're gonna stay as a writer?
1: I think partly because now my subject is cannabis, there aren't writers kind of flooding the market. Since I can kind of do everything involved in the books that I am writing. I love to cook. I love cannabis. And I'm just continually growing in my understanding of cannabis and food. I learn how to work with food and work with flavors to kind of get the best. I I think I said like, Best bang for your bong. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I, I want to make the food the best it can be, and I want to deliver the results, you know, that I want in a certain recipe, that I want in a in oh. a product. So curiosity and excellence. Yeah, like if someone had said to me, you know, you're gonna have. You know, a cannabis edibles business, and you're going to write. Can- I would, you know, of course, I never thought of it, and I don't know where our government's going. But the fact that there's cannabis and that there are big mm-hmm. like billboards around Portland, you know, with pot on them and shatter and all the pipes and stuff—it's it's wonderful. And I th- I think because there aren't that many people who have the group of skills that I have. Like, there are a shit ton of Mm -hmm. people who smoke pot and make brownies, Mm -hmm. but there aren't a ton of people who know how to write a recipe, know how to cook, and know Mm -hmm. how to cook with cannabis. So I think that what I bring to the table or to the dispensary in terms of our products and the books, I think I understand what people like to eat, what flavors draw people in and what strains I want to use so that people are getting the taste and the feeling that they want. I think I just got lucky to have these things like all come together at the right time. You know, it's like here I was, I lived in Portland, I wrote some books about that. And now I have managed my epilepsy. Like I no longer need any medication but cannabis. So this is a miracle.
0: It is a miracle. And it's a great story as a writer. And I think one of the questions I really want to ask you is how along the way when you choose a topic and you love the topic, there's going to be somebody, maybe parents, maybe in-laws, maybe one of your children, who questions those choices? And so mm-hmm. you, I read in one of the interviews with you that your son, for instance, was a, a non-cannabis person uh, yeah. a, at some point, and and you know there's a lot of judgment when we make these kinds of choices, and that your daughter-in-law, who's now your business partner. Was a little bit nervous to tell her parents when she went into the cannabis business. Yes, yeah, yes. there was a very surprising twist in that story with her, right? Isn't there? A, like, the family started asking about, well, like, what what kind of symptoms can it treat? And Absolutely. How? So I always yes. say to people, you know, you're going to have to be brave. But this looks like there's got to have been some people along the way who tried to talk you out of this. Was that the case?
1: Um, I wouldn't say try to talk me out of it, but I would say there were were people who were like, you know, it's probably better if you don't mention what you do, you know, at our dinner party tonight. (laughs) Or our daughter, we picked her up, uh, like when she was about to leave college, she went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota. We picked her up and she had a bunch of friends come in the car and I mentioned something about what I did and Olivia looked at me and I'm like, what? And Olivia said, oh, I never told anybody what you did. So I think there was definitely a stigma, which I think has really diminished thanks to partially Sanjay Gupta, I think, who Mm -hmm. actually kind of did an about face and took back most of the bad things he said about cannabis. I think his only Mm -hmm. regret was the weight gain. But he said, you know, what he had thought about it, you know, he didn't feel like it was the evil drug. Um, and the same with oh, the writer who went to Colorado, ate the entire chocolate bar. Oh, Maureen Dowd, that column yes, that she wrote in the New York Times. Yes. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I refer to that when I can remember the name because <laughs> like she really like screwed things up for a little while. And there were all these people yeah. like, you see, I knew that was bad and look what happened. And and. She, Later, she admitted that she didn't follow the directions. She did not do what every person must know when they're going to try cannabis. Start low, go high. Start with the littlest bit and don't do anything else that day or night. Don't eat a little more because it's not common, but it can take two to three hours sometimes for the weed Mm -hmm. to kick in and... If you think it's not kicking in and you eat a ton, you may have a very pleasant experience or it may be a nightmare. But if you Mm -hmm. start low and just increase like over the course of a week, you can find out what your potency is and. Be comfortable knowing that if you have a dispensary that you can go to, you can say, my dose is 10 milligrams of THC. And then you'll be told what your options are.
0: Let's talk a little bit about those uh, those famous brownies. And then I want to ask you about what I might be able to talk you into writing at some point, because I, I think there's a memoir in here. But those brownies, the very word pot, the very phrase pot yeah. brownies just conjures up for so many of us those awful things we tried to choke down yes. in college that gave us varying degrees of responses. And so you took it on like a chef would. And that recipe is famous. I mention your name to anyone and they say Pot brownies. Aww. And so the, the, apparently the secret to cooking with cannabis is fat, or so I learned from you. The uh, THC, the main psychoactive ingredient, bonds to fat molecules when heated. This is the beginning and end of what I know. So I will put the recipe up on the site when we put up the transcription. But
1: what else does the home chef need to know to get these right? The most important thing is getting your hands on quality cannabis. And I don't mean like fancy cannabis. It doesn't need to be purple or have orange hairs or whatever. Just (laughs) cannabis that's grown safely, you know, pesticide free, you know, grown with the kind of care and love that makes these plants thrive. And it's crazy. You know, I've been to farms just Amazing, Like just a forest of cannabis. So good cannabis, because if it isn't good quality, it can have a really off taste. And so you're sort of starting with something you're not going to ever get to, like the ideal of the recipe. So if the mm-hmm. brownie recipe calls for two tablespoons of... Infused butter, you need to know what the potency of the butter is, or at least as good a guess as you can make because I live in Oregon, everything is lab tested. I know what the potency is. I know exactly the numbers, so I know how to dose whether I'm making things at home or you know in the THC kitchen. So you need to know how to dose. you need to remember that heat will diminish a lot of important parts of each cannabis strain. So cannabis is um, a combination of cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids. And these are all the things that inform how you'll feel, how it'll taste. The terpene profile will really help people know what they can expect or what they should go out and look for. Well, that's just some extra tips for people,
0: and I think that they should go to the website and have a look at the recipe and be very cognizant of the fact that these are well known to be the best brownies that are made. Yeah. And Speaking of the website, writers are notoriously bad at having platforms. Yours is gorgeous, <laughs> and I know that your husband is a is a photographer, specifically a food stylist photographer, but... Writers of our generation somehow think these things that books will sell themselves. I, I know yeah. that they don't. You know that they don't. So can you just give us a, a minute on uh, or just a few seconds on, on self-promotion and, and how you've just got to the point where you're comfortable doing that?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I sort of can't get over how sort of easy that has happened. I think I was... Extremely fortunate, like right place, right time. And as I said earlier, there just aren't a ton of people who know how to do the different things that need to be done, you know, to write a book about cannabis. Mm-hmm. First of all, the website that's all my daughter in law, Mary. She's incredible, oh, that's good. turned it into just a stunning branding. Um, so that is all Mary. That leads me to my last question, which is how and when are we going to get you to write
0: a memoir? Because I would think the Test Kitchen alone would reap enough tales to make a whopper of a story. But I think if you go back to the beginning and and start with the bloody fingers from the sock puppets for other people's children, you might find yourself in memoir territory. So I do want to encourage you. I wasn't able to find enough story from you. There's lots of interviews with you, but I think the story from you would be worth its weight in cannabis. So I I hope you'll
1: consider doing that. Oh cool. (laughs) I I would love to do that. I think that my writing is kind of more Mm storytelling than like actual writing. You know, I as I was saying to my friend yesterday, like I wouldn't know a dangling participle from, you know, a, a, an elephant. You know, I just don't know. I don't know if I ever learned. People, You know, it's like, that's not it. I write as I speak, and I feel like a memoir kind of would work with how I'm comfortable with writing.
0: Well, we will look forward to it. Thank you, Laurie. It's really a joy to, to reconnect.
1: Oh, thank
0: you. Same here. Absolutely. The book is The Cannabis Apothecary, A Farm to Table, and that's P-H-A-R-M, A Farm to Table Guide for Using CBD and THC to Promote Health, Wellness, Beauty, Restoration, and Relaxation. The author is Laurie Wolf. See everything she does at laurieandmaryjane.com. I'm Marion Roach Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. QWERTY is produced at Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening.